0: Stoking hopes that Ireland's troubles are becoming history, Catholics and Protestants are working out their differences, and Irish eyes are smiling more brightly than ever. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. On today's Travel with Rick Steves to celebrate St. Patrick's Day, we'll go beyond the clichés and look at the lesser-known face of Ireland, the North. I've invited my friend from
1: Northern Ireland, Stephen McPhillamy, to fill us in about what Ulster's really all about. Protestants will greet you and welcome you into their homes as one of their family. Catholics will do exactly the same. Our only problem is we just don't do that to each other at the moment. Stephen will explain the dynamic between Ireland's two big
0: groups and track their recent efforts at peace. No trip to Ireland is really complete without visiting and understanding the North. Later in the hour, we'll delve into a different branch of Celtic culture as a Franco-Celtic tour guide from Cork explains the connections between Ireland and France. There's more than one shade of green in Ireland, and we'll celebrate some of the different colors in the Celtic rainbow coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. There's hope that the violence associated with the Troubles in Northern Ireland is finally starting to fade away, but tempers still run high between the Unionists, those loyal to the Crown, and Republicans, those who'd like to join the Republic. Coming up, we learn how your own fact-finding mission to the north can be both safe and fun. And later in the hour, we'll explore Celtic connections with France. We're exploring Irish culture today on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves and this is Travel with Rick Steves. I want to take you now to North Ireland. Ulster. When we're thinking about Ireland, uh, many people have all of these uh, romantic images of the Emerald Isle, and I'm firmly committed to the notion that when you go to Ireland, you need to see the north as well as the Republic. Remember, the north is about a quarter of that island that is part of the United Kingdom. The people there voted to stay with Britain when Ireland had its civil war and, and, and managed to break away from Britain. Consequently, three-quarters of the island is independent Ireland, and the northern quarter is still loyal to London and it is Northern Ireland, part of the UK. It uses the British pound. It's an exciting opportunity for travelers when they go to Ireland to see the entire island. There's lots of great and happy issues about the Northern Ireland, but a lot of travelers are confused a little bit about the political problems. I've got a friend of mine in town from Derry in the north. His name is Stephen McPhillamy. Stephen is a tour guide, uh, works with me, taking American groups around Ireland. Stephen also runs a youth hostel up in Derry, and Stephen's joining us now to talk about what's going on in Ireland today, especially up in the north. Stephen, thanks for joining us. No problem,
1: Rick. Good to be here. Good man.
0: Did I get that right? Ireland, uh, run by London for centuries, uh, pretty bloody, generations-long uprisings against the British, finally break away in the, around the 1920s, and then all of a sudden you got your independence from Britain, and the
1: top quarter wants to stay with Britain. Aye. Uh, you know, about 33% of the top corner wanted to go with the rest of Ireland and become independent, but... 66% wanted to stay with London.
0: So that was yeah. it In uh, when, it, when it was 1923 or what? 1921,
1: when? yeah, between that period, 21-23. Okay. So
0: you win your uh, war against Britain, uh, you find yourself independent, and then... What a sad thing. There's a civil war in Ireland uh, deciding what to do with your independence and you decide to do with plebiscites or whatever, have a vote, and the top quarter votes uh, two-thirds to one-third to stay with Britain.
1: You have to remember that the people who live in the northeast corner are predominantly Scots, Irish, you know, uh, Presbyterians from lowland mm-hmm. Scotland, a few Welsh and a lot of English and who came over 400 years ago. Came over had, or sent over? Uh, Why did that happen? Well, some came over. Most were invited over by England after they had conquered Ireland. The north, you see, Rick's always been the most rebellious part of Ireland. So that was really yeah. the most yeah, the most feisty Irish yeah. part. It became yeah. planted with Scotsmen. Yeah. Hmm. The English realized once they had conquered Ulster that Ulster would never be loyal to them, so they needed to bring in a loyal population. Thankfully, they could have killed off the native population, the Catholic Irish, but they didn't, but they decided to replace them, put them on the reserves. So the Catholics of Northern Ireland historically have been the underclass in yeah. the north. and also uh, the conflict in the north is not just about religion. No, I mean I'm economic, a Catholic, but I have many Protestant friends and right. acquaintances, and it's not an, even an issue for me. I've never in my wildest dreams ever thought about discriminating against someone because they were Protestant or Catholic or whatever. You know, for me, it's more of a political issue. It's more of a cultural issue. And as you just said there, economics, yeah, the Catholic community generally. The the Catholics were disadvantaged economically. Definitely, yeah. But that's changing now, too. Sure. Um, You know, things are going well for the North. The men of violence, the women of violence have decided to put their guns away. The, The sad thing, maybe also the inspiring thing is there's so much talent in the North of Ireland. So much talent. And so much talent, and if we could just put our differences aside and get together, you know what we could achieve would be limitless. Unbelievable what we could achieve. A couple of things. First of all, plantation. You know the the Scots
0: were planted there by the English for political reasons. But weren't Dutchmen planted in South Africa and uh, Israelis planted in Palestine and yes, so on? Same situation. You know, I, I'm not. I'm not living this, you're living this. You're, you're a Catholic living in Northern Ireland uh, and you've got this issue, the, the seeds of uh, problems planted generations centuries ago and still you've got this stress in your society because of plantation. What's your thoughts on plantation of people?
1: Hmm. Well, all I know is that I, I live in a society which is divided. Um, unnaturally. Uh, unnaturally and, and that can cause a lot of problems, it can cause a lot of violence, it can cause a lot of mistrust of each other. And the Scots people are locals now, as far as they're concerned. Exactly, yeah, and it, and it can also maybe be a good thing too, because with them came so many great things into Ulster when the Scots Protestant settlers came over. You know, we never had green vegetables in Ulster before before they came. They showed us how to cultivate Well, they didn't really show us. They took the land and cultivated it their way. We used to have a sort of Stone Age methods of cultivation. You know, we'd be tying the plow to the tail of the horse until the Scots arrived. Okay. You know, they showed us how to use plows, or they took the land and used you know hmm. plows and and they brought a whole new industrial revolution in the, the northeast of Ireland is the only part of Ireland that had factories and we always we think of a lot of american presidents being irish but most of those are scots right? irish right yeah, from the north 17 united states presidents have had northern irish heritage 17,
0: 17.
1: american presidents have
0: northern irish yeah. so
1: and and kennedy was the one with kennedy their... and reagan was the other one who had southern irish but all the others are from the north what yeah. is it about the scots irish that would in get them to be so many presidents in the United States I think they were just a very um, lots of characteristics tough proud stubborn Republican you know they were they were uh, communicators yeah they were leaders they were against the idea of monarchy you see Rick because I don't know if you're aware but when the Scots came across to Ulster they felt that in 1690 when King William of Orange the big Protestant hero came along they fought for him but afterwards they felt betrayed by him so they all went off to the frontiers of America they became the Scots Irish in Alabama Tennessee huh um, became Indian fighters. David Crockett's grandparents were born in the same town as me, Derry. Wow. So, you know, there's a strong connection there. Many Ulstermen were at the Alamo. Very strong and proud connection. But they also told their kids never again trust a monarchy. Right. Never again. So that 's that spirit, that, that spirit of independence. Yeah, that spirit of republicanism. And, yeah. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that, thankfully, uh, moderate sanity has
0: sort of taken over and people are putting away their arms and working it out in Northern Ireland. Still about, what, 40% of the people are Catholic, 60% are Protestant. Roughly that, yeah. Now, what sort of initiatives,
1: creative things, are being done to bring the communities together? There's many initiatives. Uh, One that springs to mind straight off is uh, an organization or a body called the International Fund for Ireland, Uh which is a, a fund that the American government, Canadian, Australian... New Zealand, British, European, Irish, these governments all contribute to this fund and they'll go in and they'll build a community centre in a deprived area. They'll fund the jobs, the staff there for maybe... Two to three years until it becomes self-sufficient. They'll set up a crash. They'll send kids off to a camp in the summer to get them out of the ghettos during the marching season, which happens in July. Protestant and Catholic kids. Protestant and Catholic kids together. Yeah, playing together, um, getting over their family baggage. Yeah, basically. but getting them out of the neighborhoods because our neighborhoods are all divided. Like every town, every village, practically in the whole nor- of the north of Ireland, is divided. So, these uh, are what we call sectarian neighborhoods sectarian right? neighborhoods. you know if you're in a Protestant neighborhood or a Catholic neighborhood exactly by the way, the curb stones are painted or the streets are painted red, white, and blue. The colors of the British flag would indicate a Protestant area and green, white, and orange, the colors of the Irish Republican flag would indicate a predominantly overwhelmingly Catholic neighborhood
0: so you drive through a little town, a little no name town somewhere in the north, and
1: do you know by the way the curbs are painted what the what the dominant uh, uh, yeah I would think ninety nine times out of a hundred you'd know exactly what's going on and who's which and who's who and what it's Protestant, Catholic, British or Irish. To me, it's interesting because in the United States, a lot of people are dealing with this.
0: uh, You know, people fly the American flag and some people uh, who would be opposed to our foreign policy would think that that's just a flag in favor of our foreign policy and some politicians wear the flag and others don't and and there's this issue of the flag. I know in uh, Northern Ireland, we have something that I consider the the tyranny of the majority where you've got a a democratic situation and it's just 60-40, so the 40% have to go with it. Unfortunately, in Northern Ireland... Uh, at least historically, uh,
1: the forty percent, the Catholics, have considered the Union Jack. They've got a nickname for it, right? Yeah, they call it the butcher's apron. The butcher's apron. Yeah, so that would indicate the animosity towards the flag. Isn't and that the a flag tragic has been thing? Covered in blood, historically, despite all the great, you know, there's lots of great and positive points associated with the British flag as well. But it is right. unfortunate that that's the that's the dilemma. But what's happening to see in recent years too, is that because the you know the Cold War is over now. America is saying to Britain, well, maybe you should treat Catholics in Northern Ireland in a different way. Maybe to treat them fairer, bring them into the process. Uh, before, that could never happen. Now that that's gone, um, I think Catholics are getting a much better treatment in Northern Ireland. The, the Irish language, the Gaelic language is recognized. There's an education and employment and all this you know, uh, health, things that are uh, very important in day-to-day life for people. Having
0: said that, as a tourist, you go through the North and you see signs of the sectarian problems. You see bonfires that are built weeks before they're going to be lit. That's right. We've often seen them together. And What does you know, that mean? What is that telling people?
1: Well, you've got the marching season, and, and, and this is the, the, the exasperating thing about life in the North is that you know, in America or Australia or Britain, they have cricket season or, or rugby season or mm. baseball season, and we have marching season in Northern mm. Ireland. It starts in uh, Easter, goes right the way through to um, September. You've got 3,000 marches by a group called the Orange Order and various other sort of Protestant secret societies and religious institutions and sort of semi-political groups. Uh, There's an old joke in the Catholic community. The Catholics don't really have an equivalent. There's no marches in in, in the Catholic community. The Catholics often say that the... Orange Man's calendar is January, February, March, 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 the whole way through. Wow. So there's a you know it's it's a big problem. Ninety-two percent of the marches are peaceful. We went to one together. We saw it, it was colourful. It was probably not um, a family affair, you know, but it was an interesting spectacle. I think people would find it fascinating to see these marches. They're they're like a drawback to the 17th century. Mm -hmm. Um, People with colorful uniforms and big drums and Mm -hmm. bands called Kick the Pope bands. And, you know, it's just a thing that Europe's really left aside now. I mean... But you said 92% were peaceful. the marches are peaceful, yeah. What about the 8%? Uh, The 8% generally can, uh, you know, they have the potential to be very violent. And, I mean, and those would be I mean you could have an orange march through a, a Protestant town and that would be just a celebration of their heritage exactly yeah. and, and and the Protestant community would love it be no, they may, it might seem a bit aggressive but generally it's all yeah. in, in good spirits but if they want to cause trouble, they march through a Catholic town. Several of the marches do go either directly through or close to Catholic neighborhoods. And that's just and looking that's for a fight. that's when all hell breaks loose quite often. Because yeah. the Catholic kids won't won't allow that to no. stand. No, the Catholic community feels it, it's, not, a, it's, in their it's face. not good in their dignity and for their honor. And they want They sometimes want to protest. But sometimes there's elements within the Catholic community who feel mm-hmm. no, it's violent. They attack it. Fascinating thing for me, Stephen. I'm talking with Stephen McPhillamy, by the way, a friend of mine who's a tour guide from
0: Derry up in the north of Ireland. When I was up in Northern Ireland, Stephen, I I saw more tourists who were from Catalan in the Basque region, parts of Spain that have had trouble, just like the Irish are having their trouble. Uh, They they must have sort of an affinity for the Catholics in the north.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, you know, the the, the international alliances that tend to develop. You know, we, we go to Belfast, there you'll see murals talking for freedom for the Basque country and the Palestinian movement, and uh, if you go into West Belfast as a tourist, you'll see a big mural in the Catholic neighborhood, and uh, maybe 30, 40 meters tall, and it says, we honor Father Mandela, Father of Freedom. Right. You, know, you would never see that in a million years in a Protestant area. In, in but Northern. in a Protestant area, I saw a Union Jack on the flagpole, and under that was an Israeli flag. Exactly. Yeah. They're indicating it. Well, I think that may be sort of showing some similarity with the the plantation or uh, colonist community in Israel, the Jewish community, but I think it's also just saying, well, if the Catholics are supporting the Palestinians, then we're going to damn sure support the Israelis, just to be. There you go.
0: More about Ulster just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Join the conversation in the feedback forum on our website. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Later this hour, Patrick Noel enlightens us on the historic connections between Ireland and France. Right now, we're talking with Stephen McPhillamy about his home turf in Northern Ireland. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Now, the IRA
1: recently has been uh, turning in its guns. Is that right? Yeah, there's been uh, an internationally uh, verified, complete decommissioning of the IRA's weapons. So Mm -hmm. I suppose, de facto, they're gone. How does that work? Do they have them hiding in some barn and then they just get a
0: truck and pick them up and turn them in? Or is it for real?
1: The way it worked was they had uh, international commissioners. One uh, the leader was a guy called General de Chastel and a Canadian general, very well respected, and himself and uh, a Catholic clergyman and a Protestant clergyman were selected to go along and verify that these weapons were decommissioned Either they were put into bunkers and it was filled up with cement or they were melted down or cut up and there was various ways it happened, but they verified that all the weapons have, have gone. There's a lot of distrust in the community you know, a lot of people don't think they're all
0: gone. Because you could be double-crossed with these kind of negotiations and then there you Absolutely. are, you're a revolutionary on one side and you've given up your guns. Absolutely. Do they keep some guns? Well, the thing, Well, uh, you know, I don't know. They've got a lot uh, of sources of money, they can get gun- money to buy more guns. Or yeah, and, and
1: some of our moderate politicians said, let's not make a big issue about these guns. The important thing is the guns aren't being used. Plus, any time the IRA ever put off bombs in the centre of London, the bombs were made from uh, agri- agricultural fertiliser and icing sugar and stuff like that. And I mean, that can't be decommissioned. So, the most important thing, I think, is that the minds of people who want to use these guns are being decommissioned. That's it. The hatred's being decommissioned through reasonable negotiation, Absolutely. Hopefully. Praise yeah.
0: God, yeah. Wonderful. Now, you know, I always thought part of the problem was the people in Ulster and Northern Ireland were afraid to be joining the Republic of Ireland because historically the Republic of Ireland has been quite poor, and the North was part of Britain and, and relatively better off. Now that Ireland has had so much support from the European Union, and I think Ireland has even surpassed Britain in per capita income, the Republic is no longer less affluent than the North, therefore the,
1: the North might be less afraid of union. Is there anything yeah, to that? I think that's a good point. I think that that's the way it's going to go maybe in, in, in maybe 10, 15 years ago, Protestant politicians who would dump their Bibles and say, we shall not join a priest-ridden banana republic. I mean, that argument, it's still there. People say it, but it's no longer, no longer credible. It's no longer reality. The republic is the Celtic tiger now. And Northern Ireland is the economy that, that is an artificial one supported by Britain. You know, they gave us a subvention every year of four billion pounds just to make sure that we have the same roads and hospitals as people in England, Scotland and Wales. I mean, we're only one and a half million people in Northern Ireland. We're very proud to be from there and beautiful place. We love it dearly, but there's no way that we pay four billion in taxes to London. So you're but, really subsidized by Britain. So yeah. you can uh, be a shining star of the United United Kingdom yeah. there in the north of Ireland. And, uh, you know, if you come to Northern Ireland, you see the standard of our education system. the Discipline in the schools is fantastic. The... The road system's brilliant. The, um, leisure centres. Leisure centres. I love those yeah. leisure centres. Exactly, in, yes. in Northern Swimming Ireland. pools, all the finest of sporting facilities. First class. That that were never in the Republic of Ireland before and quite often you wouldn't see around the United Kingdom like in Britain and Wales and Scotland and, and in England. So you live in Ulster.
0: You live in the north. You're a Catholic in the north. Uh, You've got a lot of Protestant friends. You see this progress towards the European Union. What do you think's the best answer for Ireland in the future? Uh, part of the EU, part of Britain,
1: what? Well, at the moment... The fact is we are part of the United Kingdom. Uh, Within Northern Ireland, there's 40% of us don't want to be part of the United Kingdom. Uh, Not that we dislike the British, but we just would rather be Irish and be with the Republic of Ireland. There's a lot of people like myself who think, well, you know, the talent that's on this island, if we can all get together, north, south, east and west, join together, what we can become is immeasurable. A fantastic opportunity for us all, Protestant, Catholic, Catholic, or anyone who's Jewish, whatever, it doesn't really matter what the hell you are, just let's get together, let's be Irish, let's be part of what's a wonderful culture. And when you go around the world, no matter where you go in the world, you say you're Irish. People love that, you know? Sure. I've never once had anyone not like me because I'm Irish, and the total opposite. And also, I know lots of people, Protestant friends from Belfast, who go on holidays around the world. They're asked where they're from, and they say they're British. And uh, people say, well, but you're from Ireland. You know, you're right. it. you live in Belfast, you live in Derry. How can you be British? So for the Protestant community, there is an identity. I wouldn't say crisis, but there's definitely an issue of identity there. Are they Irish? Are they British? Are they Northern Irish? Are they Ulster Scots? Are they Scots Irish? There's so many going around, whereas for my community, it's much more easy. For me, I'm Irish. You know, My passport says I'm Irish because I'm allowed to have an Irish passport, and therefore I am. Now, from a traveler's point of view, a lot of people are
0: nervous about traveling in the north because they remember headlines of bombs and so on. You've been taking groups around Ireland for a
1: decade. Is it safe to travel in the north? Absolutely. I don't think there's ever, um, ever been an attack on a tourist up there. You see, the thing with the north is, Rick, and as you know this well, the Protestant community will treat an American visitor to Northern Ireland with open arms, right. a Catholic visitor will treat them with open arms, but they just might not treat each other with open arms. You know, so the tourist is really in a privileged position absolutely yeah and, and the welcome that awaits people there is is brilliant and it's beautiful and very positive there's so much to see and I, but I also think that the slight undercurrent of tension mm-hmm. I think that's a fascinating one I actually I like it and I, I mean, like it too and exa- exactly you took my film crew to the Felons pub tell me that's about the, that just a second well we went to the Felons club in West Belfast which is a Club for Republican ex-prisoners, and that would mean men who were women who were in the IRA and have fought Britain violently. Catholic, uh, I mean on yeah, the from the yeah. Catholic community. And uh, to become a member of the club, you have to, I think, have spent a year and a day in a British prison for political offenses, so there'd be a very uh, tough clientele in there that would be the perception of it. Now, this it's, is a pub in Belfast. There's a pub in West Belfast on a place called the Falls Road. Now, okay. from the outside, it's a very it's a sort of a Ford Apache style, uh, except painted bright green with big Irish flags on. on, right. on it. And you have to go through several gates to get in. Security cameras. But once you go, once you get inside, it's a total shrine to Irish nationalism, with uh, marble plaques on the walls honouring Bobby Sands, who was a man who died in hunger strike for his right. beliefs back in 1981. And harps, wooden harps that were carved by the prisoners inside the Maze prison, things like that, you know, glorifying the republican cause, the Irish republican cause, the unification of Ireland. Now, obviously, that's a place where a Protestant person or a person of British background would feel very uncomfortable. Better lay low and, and be quieter.
0: Well, you know, that's exactly. a sensitivity. When you're exactly. traveling in the north, each pub would have a, sort of a sectarian orientation. Yeah, and well, you can know when you step in. if You can just see by the, the paraphernalia and the
1: colors and so on. Yeah, it is a thing I would say to visitors going to the north. Don't be uh, frightened. Don't be scared. Don't be even cautious. But just be aware of, of the fact that you know you do have to be sensitive. You can't go into a, a Protestant village and ask for leprechauns or shamrocks or you know start talking about St. Patrick's Day or singing or just you know, be, Irish just songs. Be, yeah. They're not interested in that. That's not their culture. It's not what they want. And they'd find that offensive.
0: And you wouldn't want to wear green
1: in a... Protestant pub. No, probably wouldn't help. Um, Neither would you you want to go into a Catholic bar with a a t-shirt of Prince William or... Hey, there's lots
0: more to Ireland than to politics, but as you pointed out, it is sort of a unique opportunity to to get away from
1: La La Land and and really see a a struggle that's going on, and and a struggle with a lot of hope. Things are getting better these days. Absolutely. There's a gritty reality there that I think people find fascinating. I also think Americans can relate to it. There's a lot of parts of America that aren't La La Land either. Lots of... uh, neighbourhoods that are probably much tougher than West or East Belfast. When you travel in North Ireland, you see this bloody red hand. What does that mean? Well, it's an interesting story because the red hand is... It's on flags,
0: it's painted on buildings, it's on
1: logos. It's simply the the symbol of the north of Ireland. It's the symbol of Ulster. And it's the only symbol accepted by both Protestant and Catholic communities, but for different reasons. Uh, It's the old coat of arms of the O'Neill family, if you're interested. That's their crest. Mm -hmm. And because the O'Neills controlled the north of Ireland... The, as Catholic chieftains, that was their symbol and therefore became the symbol of the north. The Protestant colonists who came across then embraced it as their symbol as well because they wanted to create a connection with this new land that they had colonized and settled. Hmm. Many centuries ago, the O'Neills wanted to become the high kings of Ulster and the Druids told them not to have a fight with their rivals, but that they should have a race from Scotland to Ireland in a wee boat, which is called a Kirk and uh, it's 12 miles from Scotland, Ireland, the the Druids say that he who puts his hand on Ulster's soil first shall have the kingdom of Ulster. But as they're, as they're about to end the race, the O'Neill is coming second, and his rival is about to jump out of the boat and claim Ulster as his. So O'Neill pulled his sword from his scabbard and chopped off his left hand, and then picked up the severed left hand and threw it onto the beach, and therefore fulfilling the prophecy of he whose hand touches Ulster's soil first Shall have the kingdom of Ulster, and that's why a dripping with blood red hand is the symbol of our people in the north of Ireland. And they got the they got the province. The O'Neills are the oldest royal family in Europe since the sixth century.
0: Since the sixth century. <laughs>
1: I want to talk now just
0: about sightseeing in Belfast because when I'm in Belfast, it's a fascinating place to check out. You've got political murals, you've got the sectarian neighborhoods where you see the working class Protestant and Catholic zones and shared black cabs that will connect people from downtown out into their neighborhoods. You've got cemeteries where they remember people who died in the hunger strikes and I even stayed in the most, what was called the most bombed out hotel in Europe. Of course, it's a nice hotel now, but tell me a little bit about these sites, Stephen.
1: Well, just in Belfast, there's a lot to do we, I help uh, run youth hostels down there in the city centre and the city centre is very safe, very welcoming. The people there have a very vibrant and even a sort of irreverent humour which has been formed as a result of the conflict they've experienced. We have uh, a fantastic museum, the Ulster Museum, where the Spanish Armada Gold is to be lo- located from the, from 1588. You have uh, the Black Taxis, which is a, a world famous about 20 or 30 years ago, basically, the state bus company refused to go into half the areas of town because of the violence that was Just too engulfing the, the regions. Yeah, and they didn't want the buses attacked or burned. So uh, black taxis filled the void, run by loyalist organizations or run by nationalist organizations. But uh, they now offer tours. A lot of these people have no conflict anymore to be involved in. So they're, they're promoting their cause or they're, they're bringing people to their areas, showing their murals, uh, making hey. money by bringing people around in their black cabs, and it's a a wonderful, fantastic experience. And these political murals are quite impressive
0: political art. I mean, they go way back to the roots of the struggle, and you can go into the Catholic neighborhood and see Catholic murals, and uh, go into the Protestant neighborhoods and see the Protestant murals.
1: Yeah, I remember being a wee boy. As a kid, these uh, murals were basically just slogans, uh, sort of amateurish slogans sketched on walls, and these days they become internationally respected works of art. The artistic quality of them is incredible. And the political undertones to them add that extra facet, that extra interesting, fascinating aspect.
0: There's no reason not to include Northern Ireland in part of your next Irish adventure, I'd say.
1: No, anyone going there will find that both communities will welcome them with open arms. Uh, Protestants will, will greet you and welcome you into their homes as one of their family. Catholics will do exactly the same. But again, our only problem is we just don't do that to each other at the moment.
0: I'm talking with Stephen McPhillamy about traveling in North Ireland. Stephen, a couple of practical points before we sign off. Uh, How about transportation connections between Belfast, Dublin, London, Scotland?
1: Uh, Transport between Dublin and Belfast is good. There's a great train service paid for by the peace process. The two governments paid for it. Hmm. Uh, A little bit expensive. If you have a student card, half price, that's great. But you can Uh, go in two hours or three hours or something? uh, To drive in a car uh, from Dublin to Belfast is now two and a half hours. And if you want to take the train? If you want to take the train, it's ironically three hours. Even on the new ex- express train? Yeah, because there's a few stops on the way. I see. Uh, there's a, adequate bus services as well, and you can fly from Belfast to any British or Irish city with uh, Ryanair, EasyJet, So the these various discount various airlines, airlines,
0: London yeah. to Belfast, great.
1: Boats and uh, cheap flights to Scotland? Yeah, great connections to Scotland. Um, people go over there for soccer games every weekend. Uh, Glasgow Celtic and Glasgow Rangers are the two big teams that we like. Um, so you want to go from Belfast to Glasgow, you fly actually, get a cheap round f- trip? You get a f- cheap flight from... Uh, 30, uh, round yeah, 30, round 30 pounds round trip Right, easy jet. Wow. Um, you can also get the ferry, it's a one hour ferry and it goes five or six times a day. Renting a car, uh, Stephen, if you rent a car in uh, one part of Ireland, can you drive it into the other with no problem? Yeah, some companies may have uh, insurance issues, you need to watch that and read the small print and obviously mention it, but yeah, it happens all the time, people drive up and down, and there's no problem. Miserable weather in Ireland. Aye, a little bit. The uh, north gets a little bit more snow than the south. Still right. nothing like um, North American standards, but we get a bit of snow up there, January, February, a bit of rain throughout the year, and we're 52 degrees north, so we're parallel with Alberta Alberta, in Canada. Okay. My experience is you just get out there and do what you're going to do, whether I'm making a TV show, leading a tour, having a vacation in Ireland, the wind blows the weather through, exactly. so it doesn't get socked in like we yeah. might be And no to. one, no one is coming to Northern Ireland for a suntan, so that's never a big that's problem. That's for sure. You probably rust just like we do here in Seattle. <laughs>
0: One pleasant
1: summer's morning, when all the flowers were springing o nature was adorning,
0: and the weeper You know, when you're tracking in Ireland, there's so many myths and and traditions and superstitions, and the countryside is just permeated with these. You come across holy wells. Each little well would have a a story that goes back centuries.
1: Yeah, the wells are everywhere, and they're pre-Christian, actually. I mean, people go to them now to be blessed and to get ailments cured. I I had a verruca, which I think you guys call planter's wort when I was 11. My mother carted me off to a holy well and stuck my ankle in it. And um he really? So really went the and disappeared two or three days later. Now oh. that could be from a religious perspective, which I would believe, but it could also be the healing properties of the water, and that's what the ancient celts saw the The ancient Celts used these wells as a as a source of healing and spirituality, so when the Christians came, they knew the people were going to go to the wells, the Christians were smart enough to say, "Okay, this is now a holy well." Uh, associated with Christianity because the people were going to go there anyway. Oh, yes. We have banshees and we have leprechauns and we're very superstitious people. We're very first world in terms of our economy but quite third world maybe in terms of our supernatural and superstitious beliefs in Ireland. And still very strong Christian faith in general. Yes. Uh, and beautiful stories about St. Patrick. St. Patrick, St. Brigid, We are known as the island of saints and scholars. That's testament to our our spiritual belief. And the shamrock is very near and dear to the the soul of Ireland. The reason the shamrock is important to us is it goes back to when St. Patrick was trying to convert the Celtic kings to Christianity. And he wasn't having great success. Uh, They were finding it difficult to come to terms with the concept of the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son and the Holy Ghost in one. And uh, his way of doing it was he bent down, picked up a shamrock, which is our national flower, only grows in Ireland. And he basically explained to them, look, there's a shamrock, one stem, and from it comes three leaves. So from God comes God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and the Celts went with that. So even St. Patrick had the gift of gab. Yeah. Wonderful way of teaching. For a Welshman, he was a very... He was a Welshman? We think he came from northern Wales or northern England, definitely a Roman citizen, but very much accepted by our people and Mm. our national hero, St.
2: Patrick.
1: Stephen, thank you so much. It's great to talk to you. Pleasure, Rick. Thank you. Yep. You're very welcome. Camila Falcher, 100,000 welcomes. From time to time, we like to
0: read from the travel haiku poems that our listeners send us at Travel with Rick Steves. The radio section of our website has details on submitting an original poem about your travels. Here are some recent submissions that we thought you'd enjoy. Melissa Speed of Fort Worth, Texas, is a fan of study abroad programs and writes us this haiku about what she remembers from a visit to London 11 years ago. Hearing a child
1: laugh, in Hyde Park I smile, we are all the same. Patrick Snetsinger is known as a haiku masa on Bainbridge Island, Washington and offers us this poem. Castles in
0: a daze and leprechauns walk the streets, faces soon extinct? And Mark McKeon listens online from Vossenar in the Netherlands and writes us this haiku about his home. It's raining again.
1: Oops, it stopped. Oops, it started. Welcome to Holland.
0: We'll explore Irish connections with France next on Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number, 877-333-RICK. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And today, we're going to analyze the connection between France and Ireland, the French-Irish connection. I have joining me a man named Patrick Noel. That's a perfect name for exploring the French and the Irish connection. Patrick's mom's Irish, and his uh, dad's side goes all the way back to France. He's got an Irish passport. He lives in Cork, and he knows France and Ireland very well, and he's going to help us with some calls looking at the French-Irish connection. Patrick, thanks for joining us. Oh, it a a pleasure. Now you live in Cork right now, right? That's right. But you've been raised with a, a French um, and an Irish
3: sort of culture in your family. Yes, b- bilingually and uh, both with both cultures, Irish as strong, both uh, Irish and French.
0: Now, as Europe is growing together, Europe is dealing with uh, mixing it up but maintaining distinct cultures. And Ireland and France are both in the EU now. You both got the same coins. You, uh, you both got the same passport. Right. People can study here, work there, no problem at all. What what sort of affinity do the French and Irish have? Are there connections with the French and the Irish that would sort of be surprising?
3: Oh, well, it goes back to the, the Celtic times. Uh, we, you, you find cells in, in the northwestern part of uh, France, um, Brittany. Brittany, right. And, and uh, also, you find all the cells in, obviously in Wales and, and Cornwall, and, and back in, in Galicia as well. So if you took a uh, boat from Brittany on the northwest of France, you could go over and hit Cornwall in the
0: southwest yeah. of, uh, of England and then bounce off of that and carry on to Ireland. And carry on to
3: Cork. And Cork, yeah. where you live. And right. all of these people uh, historically spoke a Celtic language. Yes, absolutely. The The Scottish, the Irish are of the same lingo, and the Manx, but the Manx was um, has disappeared right now. And the last Cornish speaker, the Cornish language died out 100 years the ago. The Cornish like uh, uh, side died out, but they were closer to the Breton and the Welsh. Okay, so the Celts in France, or the Bretons, the Cornish
0: and the Welsh were one... Arm of the Celtic languages. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And then the Irish and the Scots were the other. Yes, with Manx, which is mm. very small.
3: All right. From the Almanya, yeah, that's that's you've, distinct as well. You've got the Celtic connection between uh, Ireland and France. What's another connection? You've loads of different connections. You've the historical connections from the Catholicism. So you're obviously the French and the Irish are Catholic cultures. Catholic cultures, they go back a long way. Okay, the, the, the progression of Catholicism or the repression of Catholicism and its position in, in each state has been completely different. How's that? Um, well, you have, for instance, in, in Ireland, the Catholicism has been completely repressed by, uh, by the, the, the English from the time of uh, the Reformation and even before that. Protestant English. Yes. Protestant English, um, they actually banned the practice of religion, of, of the Catholic religion, from from a lo- For a long time, the only uh, heads of, of, of villages and, uh, were, were priests, Catholic priests. It was like uh, the only form of resistance of, let's say, flocking was the Catholic religion. For the Irish to stand up against the English.
0: Yes, yeah. And uh, I think you could say the English were more interested in dominating Ireland economically than religiously, but yeah, it just correct, happened yeah. to be the tribes uh, there were uh, Catholic, whereas the English happened to be Protestant. We have Tony on the line in uh, New Jersey, who's got some thoughts on this. Hi, Tony.
2: Oh, hi, Rick. How are you?
0: Great. Thanks for your call.
2: Yeah, the, the question I had, and it's fascinating, I grew up in uh, in Montreal, Quebec. Uh, I now live in Chatham, New Jersey. I had grown up in, in a, a very French, albeit Canadian culture, uh, but my family is, is very Irish. And the question I had was just, as Patrick had alluded to a moment ago, the current role of, of the Catholic Church in terms of shaping Current uh, uh, French and and Irish culture and just similarities and differences, and this is it as pronounced as as perhaps it had been in the past?
0: So, how is the Catholic Church influencing the contemporary cultures uh, where it has dominated them a hundred years ago? What's going on today? It, in other words,
2: exactly, and especially in this age of, of um, you know instant news and globalization, the internet and information sharing, etc.
0: Well, that's interesting. Patrick lives in Cork. Uh, You've got your family in Cork. How is the, when you were a a small kid compared to today for a child, for instance, what's the influence of the church?
3: Well, I think in Ireland, I think they're kind of 2 distinct. The Catholicism unites them, but their story uh, is different and they've been influenced in different ways. Uh, They both suffer from the same ailment nowadays, Ireland and France, in terms of Catholicism. The the people going to church, the, uh, the numbers have really waned on the you know downside I know that's true in France that's also true in Ireland eh? very true in Ireland Um, maybe less maybe just to a a, a slight degree less but still if the Pope comes to Ireland a third of all the people in Ireland gather together in the big park outside of Dublin what park was that Phoenix Park Uh, that was Phoenix Park Yeah, 1.2 million there Yeah, 1.2 million
0: people gathering for a mass so maybe they don't go every Sunday but they still uh, get excited when the Pope comes to town
3: Exactly. Um, (laughs) How do you describe that? That's exactly when things started to change from that time, actually. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah. And uh, there's a lovely book out called The Pope's Children by Mark Williams talking about all this change in the... In the Irish mentality and, and regard for the for, for the church,
0: what year was that big visit by the Pope?
3: Nineteen seventy nine.
0: Seventy nine. Yeah. The Pope came to to Dublin. So in that generation since then, there's been a big change.
3: Yes, the baby boom from there. that's the new generation that is actually very um, benefiting from the fruits of of the the big you know the boom that's been going on for the last ten years. What, what, Patrick, you live in Ireland. Uh, you've grown up in Ireland. What, to
0: what do you attribute that? Are there scandals in the church that disillusioned people, or is it just a symptom
3: of the modern age? It, it's a bit of both. Uh, there was this. There's a big thing in Ireland that wasn't so present in in France, but I mean, which is present in the Catholic religion. I mean, we can find it at different moments. Is guilt uh, the guilt has been a huge factor because there were so many rules, and the, the parish priest was the God Almighty. Right uh, and couldn't be questioned, that led, opened the door to abuse. And it has been loads of abuse. We only scratched the surface of the abuse. Today, there are cases that cannot be brought to justice because it's too much time, the people are deceased, whatever. But uh, that's so. the same when you say power corrupts. I guess even religious power corrupts then, eh? Oh, absolutely. Uh, now, you found that in Ireland. Well, I found that when I was younger, but uh, coming to Ireland and... Uh, I just found it in the culture. There was this fear, and uh, and it has waned practically completely now. This like a rebellion, a counter uh, movement to I think plenty. The fact that there's full employment, there's abundance of everything has got a lot to do with it. Um, Ireland's got very materialistic, and he's losing in a way a little bit of its uh, what makes its uh, raison d'être. Uh, you know, in terms of interest, there sometimes it's slightly. You know, people say it's different views. So Tony in New Jersey, does that make sense?
2: Well, I was going to say that's fascinating. The the thought that popped in my mind is, um, with the increasing uh, materialism in Ireland and, and perhaps France, if that perhaps strips away a little bit of the mysticism which had powered the Church through the ages...
0: I think you can make an interesting uh, correlation between affluence and um, secularism. Scandinavia is a good example. You know, they're, technically, they're uh, Lutheran countries. I mean, people have to pay taxes to support the Lutheran church, I believe, but almost nobody goes to church, and you can say it because it's the most self-assured and affluent corner of Europe. Ireland has suddenly become one of the hottest affluent places in Europe. Consequently, church attendance is going down. When you go to the developing world, you find uh, church attendance is huge, and and religion dominates the the communities and the people's ways of life. I guess when you're really uh, filthy rich, you're like a camel trying to get through the eye of the needle, huh? (laughs) (laughs)
2: That's fascinating.
0: All right. Uh, uh, Now, so contemporary, I I think we can say Europe is becoming... Well, from a Christian point of view, a missionary field. I mean, it's sort of interesting to think that the the home of St. Francis and St. Patrick and all these guys is is sort of looked upon from other parts of Christendom as a place that uh, is falling away from the church. But historically, I think it's clear France and Ireland are shaped by their Catholic heritage. Even in the the EU Constitution, it's uh, famously secular. There's no real reliance on the church, but they do. The only mention of the church is that we do have a, a Christian heritage that shapes the cultures we have today. Patrick, how would you compare the uh, how Catholicism has shaped France as opposed to Ireland?
3: Well, um, France has been rocked by different in a different way through the French Revolution, where um, the position of the church was completely wiped away. That's true, wasn't it? Just literally, yeah, yeah, yeah. legally uh, abolished, and the kingdom and and um, all that went with it. Churches were turned into temples of reason. Yeah, well, they, they, they were united. And um, Napoleon kind of got that a little bit together just to kind of keep the peace when he, he came to prominence. And uh, eventually, it was actually separated in the early 1900s. Uh, the state and the church was completely separated uh, for the good of everyone. As it remains today. Yeah. Tony, thanks for your call.
2: Well, thank you so much, Rick. Thank you, Patrick. That uh, that was thank you, pleasure. wonderful to hear the conversation.
0: All right. Happy travels. Amy's on the line in Lafayette, Colorado. Hi, Amy.
4: Hi, how are you?
0: Great, thanks for your call.
4: Well, thank you. I'm also a fan of the show, um, <laughs> like others, um, and of the travel tools that you provide.
0: Thank you. Do you got any, what are your thoughts on this uh, French-Irish connection?
4: Well, I'm actually very fascinated by this um, Catholic connection that um, is really running through as a theme because my grandma who recently passed away she was my her maiden name was o'brien and she was irish catholic and somehow ended up meeting my grandfather who is french and german and our last name supposedly is a french spelling of a german name although i don't know whether that's true it's a spelling of schmidt with a z instead of a dt Hmm. and they're both very, with a strong Catholic connection, and I was wondering, first of all, you know, if that makes any sense, and if that's possible, that that could be a French spelling of a German name, and why, I guess, if there was any sort of a movement of people from Germany to France, and to England, and, uh, and of course Ireland with respect to Catholicism and moreover how one would trace your heritage um, because I am planning on traveling to Ireland and would love to be able to find out sort of what the heritage is and what the connections are with my family.
3: Right, um, Schmidt, um, I've come across the name Schmidt in France but it's written S-C-H-M-I-T-T, uh which is kind of slightly different. Um, there's no really obvious connection to a a French um, it's a French sounding it's probably Germans that might have um, come through in subsequent to the wars or were you know for some reason displaced and
0: a lot of times you'd change your name to make it easier on your family when you're trying to assimilate into a culture that didn't like where you came from right
4: right and I know that's true but it seems that S.E.H.M.I.T.Z. would not necessarily be easier
0: It doesn't look terribly French to me, but... uh, Yeah, me
4: uh, neither. That's why I've never truly believed my dad when he tells me that.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, maybe you've got to go over there and do a little research on your own there, Amy.
4: How does one go about that?
0: Well, let's take Ireland, for instance, because that's where Patrick lives. Uh, If you want to trace your roots in Ireland... Uh, You
3: have to go... In Ireland, you have to go to the actual um, uh, locality, the parish, because uh, a lot of the records were were burnt in in the forecourts Mm. uh, when when there was the, the Rising... And, uh, and uh, explain that a little more. Though, when they and, and when there was the the Easter Rising and subsequently the War of Independence and uh, the liberation of Ireland, there was fighting going on around the four courts. And uh, um, on the occasion of a fire there, uh, it, it destroyed all records that you know from that time. So that's wow. going back uh, way back in history.
0: So the records that do survive would be in the village church. Uh, exactly, the, pa- the, the, the
3: parish uh, the area and in, in the local priest would have access to All right, um, well, the local parish. Amy, good luck on your search.
4: Yes, thank you very much. Uh-huh, bye now. Bye-bye.
0: Sharon is on the line in uh, Capitola, California. Hi, Sharon.
5: Hi, how are you doing, Rick?
0: Great, thanks for your call. Thanks. We're talking with Patrick Noel about a French-Irish connection. What are your thoughts on that?
5: Yeah, I actually um, am Scottish and Irish, but um, my maiden name is Lacey, spelled L-A-C-Y, which uh, half the family thinks is a connection to de Lacy in Ireland. And um, the, other insists, the other side of the family insists that it must be Gaelic. And I guess I'm kind of curious why it would matter after 150 years um, having immigrated that long ago. But I'm curious you know, if there's um, a significant French connection
3: since the Norman invasion. Well, there, there were Huguenots came to, to Ireland as well. There was a famous Huguenot quarter down in Cork in French Street, Church Street. Coming back to your name, De Lacy is, could be linked to, the from Norman uh, heritage. There is also the name uh, Lucy, L-U-C-Y, which is on its own, Lucy, L-U-C-Y. That's a very current family name, in Cork as well, especially. So maybe you you, you could um, direct your research to that to the Cork area. Okay.
0: Um, it's an interesting point that Sharon brings up why people would even care. And it is kind of funny, isn't it? Generations later, they're still debating, is this Norman or is this Irish?
5: Yeah, I, I just find it really interesting. Um, but uh, I... and and. I guess I'm not am not certain why I even care, but I have a tendency to lean towards the Gaelic connection and, and assume that, um, among other things, I have always heard that Hugh de Lacy didn't have any legitimate heirs.
3: Right. Uh, that's that, that, that's interesting. I mean, the Gaelic is always more romantic, anyway. So, so he uh, had no legitimate heirs, <laughs> meaning he had illegitimate heirs.
0: Is that the idea? I
5: assume he probably did.
0: <laughs> I think Hugh de Lacy probably did. All right, well, that's one reason, one thing to splice into your travel planning, uh, yeah. Sharon, when you head over there. So good luck with that.
5: Well, thank you very much.
0: Yeah, thanks for your call. I'm talking with Patrick Noel, and we're exploring the connections between the French and the Irish. Now, uh, most of the connections are because of the religion, the common religion, uh, Catholicism. There's also connections because they have a common enemy.
3: Yes, um,
0: Britain, England. Britain. Yeah. All over Europe in the history, you learn, my neighbor's neighbor is my friend because you have the common enemy in the middle. And historically, of course... England and France were the, were the superpowers and uh, the yeah. Irish were the little thorn in England's backside and uh, the Irish had that uh, also the Scots I was just mm. in Scotland and there's a lot of Mary Queen of Scots was basically I guess raised in France and mm. the French took her in and, and had great for hopes for her because she was sort of the hope of a Catholic Scotland Re- reviled, to, yeah. to stand mm. up against the uh, Protestant English so as we struggle with these different cultural connections, we're entering into a, a fascinating time for traveling through Europe because as Europe is uniting, the regions are able to flex their muscles and wave their flags and speak their dialects more freely because the nations are no longer threatened by the regions because the nations realize they don't matter that much anymore because Europe is becoming Europe rather than instead of Paris and, and London and Amsterdam and Berlin calling the shots. What do you see, Patrick, as uh, the impact of Europe uniting on the regions in their ability to, to be independent culturally?
3: Well, um, my view is that, for instance, I'm against the European constitution as in terms of having a kind of a synthesized Europe uh, and a federal Europe. I think, f- like, for the States, it works differently because it, it was a new country and it, it was um, there was a mix there a dynamic mix, and it's proven its its mm-hmm. its workability, whereas in Europe, you can't explain globalization to the French, um, you know, winemaker or, you know, all the really ethnic uh, uh, stuff. The traditions go very deep in France, for instance. I take the example of France, because uh, it seems to not... Globalization seems to fit better for England and Ireland for some reason. Like, they've gone away a little bit from, from the land as well mm-hmm. in those two countries, whereas... So that's why I think um, there should not be a constitution but a respect of each one's cultures and then but they can still have a synergy. But don't you think that the unification of Europe or, or, or
0: the, the sentiment in Brussels with the um, European politicians is to celebrate and support the ethnic differences of Europe while still trying to be competitive in a global world, in a global economy?
3: I think I, I think they're trying to do that uh, they are probably a little bit heavy on the b- bureaucracy and right. it, it'll, it takes a long time to get anything through.
0: Right. Um, but they still they they are champions of the uh, regions rather than the nations.
3: Yeah, so I mean I would go along with that, yeah. All right. Yeah. On a political view, I I do think for the world world peace in general, I think having Romania and Bulgaria join before Turkey um or you know, ahead of Turkey and leaving Turkey out was maybe a bit of a mistake. I think Turkey should be considered to
0: Well, that's the next challenge for Europe to deal with. Yes. And that's another interview altogether. Okay. Patrick Noel, thanks so much for helping us explore the connections between France and Ireland. It's my pleasure, Rick. Thanks. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online, including listener feedback, archived audio on demand, and podcast extras. It's in the radio section at our website, ricksteves.com. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at AA.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.